Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that loves James Ward-Prowse more than his wife. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Kickball Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. Uh, and here in the UK, we've just experienced a scorching weekend of derbies. Uh, Spurs took on league leaders Arsenal in a battle for North London. A resurgent Manchester United faced a Manchester City, keen to close the gap. And at the other end of the table, we had a couple of uh, more ill-defined derbies. Forrest uh, hosted Leicester in the sort of that derby that I think Nottingham Forest fans don't necessarily consider a derby, but Leicester City fans do consider a derby. <laughs> yeah. um, and then Southampton played Everton in a game that would not be considered a derby by most, but has been by me. Uh, which I'm calling the derby of the out-of-depth managers. Um, we had a lot of really interesting games, uh, lots of movement in the table, and it's lined us up for another really exciting um, couple of days of football with a lot of sort of big six-pointed games going on. Um, but I think probably the best place to start off is with the North London derby um, because we're looking at the top of the table again. We're looking at Arsenal, um, and the big question around Arsenal, certainly throughout the course of this season, but certainly over... You know, the last couple of games they drew with Newcastle, for example, has been, are Arsenal having a really good season or are they having a pretty good season? But it's just the case that they've played not that many of the good teams. They haven't, they've still yet to play City twice, for example. They lost to United. They've just had a sort of a good run. Um, and this was maybe sort of their first really, really tricky game, aside from United at Old Trafford, um, that they had to do, play a, a, a top six, so-called top six team at their home ground. And they came away with all three points. Well, I think um, in terms of whether or not they're a very good team or whether or not they've had a good run of fixtures, like I think it can be both. And I think it probably is. I mean, one thing that is is looming on the horizon at some point, that April to May fixture list for Arsenal looks horrible. They've got a bunch of away games against the big teams. It's going to be a real tight um, you know, end of the season for them, especially if... Um, you know, the league the league drops to maybe like five points. Um, that being said, they are just having a more consistent te- um, season than the rest of the big teams around them. Um, and really, that's that's what it takes to win. So I think I think it's both. You can't you can't criticize them for being consistent against bad teams. But when other teams aren't doing that um, and when it's not really their fault that they haven't had a lot of the big fixtures yet. Um, you know, as you said there, they've lost one. They've won one. Um, and often, you know, this, the Premier League is not won by by beating other teams in in the big six or the big four. It's often won by just grinding out wins against the lower teams. Um, either one can make a difference. So, I, I think they've got a big road ahead of them, but they're doing everything right. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely correct. But I just, you know. There's no such thing as an easy game in the Premier League, although we will be coming on to evaluate whether that statement still holds true a little bit later in the episode. But maybe there are sort of less easy games than you might expect. You might look at the fixture list and go, well, you know, Arsenal have got Brentford at home or sort of Leeds at home. And, you know, that's a much easier game than Chelsea away. But it's not necessarily um, always in the Premier League. Sure. Um, so, so I do know a point, but I, but I also think, you know, some people have been looking at, you know, what, what people do a lot of the time for any sort of team that they support, you know, they'll look at where their team is um, at a given point, sort of how many points they've got from so many games and sort of extrapolate that over the 38 games to give themselves an idea of where they might be. And, I, you know, you could do that for Arsenal, but I think the fact that they you know, haven't played City home or away, they haven't played uh, Liverpool at Anfield, for example, um, you know, they haven't played, um, well, they have played Brighton, Brighton away, but... Um, you know, they haven't played the two hardest away games in the calendar um, or City at home, which is probably the third hardest game in the calendar on paper anyway. Um, sure. Still means there's sort of nine very, very tricky points for, for, for them to get. What I do think is interesting is that this win um, has, you know, mathematically taken the chance to go back above them out of City's hands. Um, for a while there, Arsenal were five points clear, and it was kind of like, well, if City just win home and away, they're then top. Um, but now, if all other things remain equal, City can't themselves take it out of Arsenal's hands. So they're, you know, hoping for for Arsenal to sort of make a mistake, um, which, you know, they, they inevitably will. They're not going to win every game for the rest of the season, but probably neither a City. Um, and I'm sure that 
Sure. When there was a five-point buffer, there was at least a little bit of City that were going, okay, this is this is safer. We'll obviously beat them at the Etihad. We can probably get them at, at the Emirates. We've got you know, a much better team, et cetera, et cetera. Now, now that doesn't matter as much. I mean, it still could over the course of the season, but theoretically, that's not a difference maker. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a good point to make. And, and they're just edging ever further away every time. Uh, you know, I feel like we check in at least every week or two uh, at, um, you know, if not maybe once a month, and we go... Are Arsenal going to win this title? Still probably no. Maybe ask us in February. Maybe ask us in March. And every time we return back to this, they're either the same amount of points ahead or they're more points ahead than than they were when mm. we first discussed it. So, it, you know, they are continuing to to have this rich run of form. They are continuing to to play well and get results. Um, so, you know, it's it does still feel like what you <laughs> have been describing it as, which is... Um, the elephant up the tree. I think there's, you know, there's there's nervousness around like what happens if if a couple of key players suddenly have a bit of a dip in form, which would be very reasonable and and you know could could easily happen, um, given that a lot of them are quite young players uh, and this is one of their first couple of good seasons. But you know they're they're doing it. Yeah, I mean we've we've just seen it happen with with Arsenal and other teams, but Arsenal perhaps most chiefly so many times the sort of like February onwards downward spiral um, where sort of things start to run out of steam and it you know it makes sense logically when you don't have the deeper squad in the world. Um, I mean I think they've they've dealt with the loss of Gabriel Jesus really really well so far, but yeah. you know let's say Bakayo Saka starts to run out of steam or or even gets injured, um, are they going to deal with that as well? Or if it's Martinelli or you know Martin Erdegaard, who would even really replace him? Um, I think Emil Smith Rowe would be probably their first choice but he's been out for for ages so no no sort of um assurances that he's going to come come in and be, be ready straight straight away um to play at the top level but but let's let's talk about the game because we'll have sort of plenty of weeks to talk about the arsenal title challenge as it matures uh, and or uh, decays over the coming weeks sure. um Two 0 for Arsenal at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium for the first time, or at, at Tottenham's ground. Now the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, uh, then Whitehall Lane. First time in a long, long time they've done this. First time in a long time that Harry Kane hasn't scored in this fixture. Um, yeah. And the game started off with <laughs> quite an amusing display by um, by Hugo Lloris chucking the ball, doing like the anti goalkeeping. It's like the one place mm-hmm. people always say, like goalkeepers, they're like, oh, if you save a shot, don't put it back in the path of the strikers. That's the worst place you can put it. It's not the number one worst place you can put it. It's probably the second worst place you can put it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, he, he obviously had a really bad game. I think um, my heart does go to him a little bit for the first goal, um, just because it did take a deflection and they can be so hard to deal with at point-blank range that I think, you know, you could take the top 10 best keepers in the world and, and like it could be 50-50 that it goes in or doesn't. That being said, I think it's clear that Hugo Lloris is no longer in the top 10 best keepers in the world. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's obviously obviously a really good result for Arsenal. Um, you know, they kept a clean sheet. They got two. Um, Odegaard's goal was fantastic. I think, I guess, I, I'm interested um, in, in the way you framed it. First Arsenal win against Tottenham away for a long, long time. And also first time Harry Kane hasn't scored. Is that as a result of good Arsenal defending? Is it a result of Tottenham not performing up to standard? And I've got another question for you, which just kind of like occurred to me as I was watching um, the game and the highlights again afterwards. If the goalkeeper's swapped, who wins this game? Uh, I don't know that well, I mean, based on just the keepers, um, you know, it's hard, obviously disclaimer. There's so many other things that would come into effect, like marshalling the back four, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, pr- probably Spurs because Spurs had you know a good amount of chances, but. Um you know, Aaron Ramsdale was fantastic. I also thought William Saliba was fantastic at sort of keeping Harry Kane uh, very, very quiet. And there was another thing that this game, and there's a couple of games that we'll be sort of talking about. Um, and I want to sort of bring this up because we're about to talk about this sort of Manchester City Arsenal, and now Manchester United sort of coming into the conversation for top of the table. Arsenal are coming up to their 19th game. Uh, I believe it is. Their 19th game will be this weekend against Manchester United. And of course, 19 games is the halfway point of the season. Um, It's also when that sort of yellow card rule becomes refreshed. So if you get any yellow cards up to your 19th game, uh, sorry, if you get up to five, a player gets suspended. 
Arsenal came into this game uh, with two really key players on four yellow cards, those being William Saliba uh, and Bukayo Saka. And in a derby game, it's really easy to imagine, especially sort of you saw the sort of fracas at the end, how things can get out of hand, how yellow cards can start flying around, and all of a sudden, you've got to play against Manchester United without one or two really key players. Um, And I thought it was was a great sort of win, almost as big as the the actual three points themselves that that Arsenal managed to, to not have those players carded. We'll talk about Manchester United in a little bit, but it's worth noting that at time of recording, they are kicking off this evening against Crystal Palace and go in with both Casemiro and Fred on four yellow cards. Um, Fred has not been named to the 11, but but Casemiro has. Um, And we've seen how important Casemiro has been to Manchester United this season. Um, And they're in a situation where he could pick up his fifth yellow card in his 19th game, so the last possible game to pick it up and miss the game against Arsenal on the weekend. Well, I think... Arsenal and Manchester United have both played 18. Uh, yes, yes, but um, Manchester United are playing their 19th tonight, and Arsenal will be their 20th, but it's because it's happened in the 19th game, it'll still count, whereas Arsenal versus Manchester United will be their 19th game. Right, OK, so if Arsenal pick up yellow cards now, they so if Manchester United pick up yellow cards now, they will be without them for Arsenal's game. Yes, and, and the same is true of Arsenal if they pick up any yellow cards against, um, if Saliba or Saka pick up yellow cards yes, against Manchester yeah. United. Yeah. But on. their next game is not a massive six-pointer against, it's, it's against Everton, away Everton, which they, you know, still could lose without the right players, but it's less of a, a big sort of <laughs> yeah, potential yeah. title decider as that game. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and look, the, these things often can can be the fine margins that, that swing a game um, and even a season in, in favour of one team or the other. So... It's a good point to to bring up. And yeah, I think it's a sign that Arsenal... It's just another sign, isn't it? That it's all going well for them. Patrick Vieira, obviously ex-Arsenal legend, might be sort of riling up Casemiro from the from the bench and uh, sort of take the red card himself as a manager if he can sort of get Casemiro booked and see his, uh, his beloved Arsenal win on the weekend. Do you, th- do you think he's got it in him? Do you think... Um... Do you think, I think Patrick Vieira's a... got it in him? Absolutely. No, do you think Patrick Vieira's a legendary shit house? <laughs> Sorry, was a pretty do I think what? player in his day, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, I thought you know Arsenal very good here. Spurs again. It was a they had a lot of shots like after the 60th minute, but just another game where they really took time to get into gear. Um, and unfortunately, Arsenal came out the trap so quickly that they kind of took the game away from them in that time. Um, I thought they got quite lucky with a with a few different things. Like for example, Christian Romero not being sent off, um, and certainly sort yeah. of Richarlison not getting any sort of like <laughs> at least sort of post match uh, punishment. Um, but yeah, they just they just didn't really look up to scratch until about half an hour was left of the game. And at that point, sometimes you can come back. And to be fair to Spurs, that is sometimes their 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 trademark doing it very sort of like 88th, 89th minute goals. Um, but yeah, didn't cut the mustard today uh, or in this game rather. Um, and they've seen their rivals sort of not only beat them at home but use that to extend their lead at the top of the table, which was infuriating enough for one fan to leap the advertising hoardings and kick a player. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And look, I think the other point to make is, um, you know, if you look into the transfer window, as I'm sure we will be talking about later on, Arsenal just suffered a massive blow. They've lost Mudrick to Chelsea um, and they've got to dip back in. They've got to look again for an, another player. Um, and it, it would be easy to, to feel like if they had lost a derby as well, a big match um, where it's not just about the points, it's also about the pride and about how you're feeling as a team. Um, for the rest of the season, mm. playing together, all this stuff, it would be easy for that be to be a two-hit combo and to really not yeah. knock the dressing room. And so, I think it's really important that they did win it, and and that kind of the momentum is continued. And it almost feels the complete opposite, which is that yeah, we've lost we've lost Madrid to Chelsea, but like we're still great, we're still winning. Like we're, we're not gonna we're just gonna do all we can. Um, so yeah, it, it's um. It's the classic play, isn't it? We talk about it all the time. You know, Arsenal have played well here. They've not played like an incredible, incredible team. Um, I think that's important to know. I think they won the game comfortably, but that's also because Spurs were just not at the races, as you said. And it's always a, a, a conversation between, you know, is it the fact that once they come across teams that play better, they'll struggle and, and we shouldn't take a lot out of this result? Or is it that, you know, they're just picking up points at times when and the teams they're playing at the time are not in good form and that's going to benefit them and help them win. 
Um, so it, it really yeah. does go both ways. I, I choose to view it probably more of the latter, just because I think it seems like a really consistent thread that teams around them are performing badly at different times. Arsenal do seem like the most consistent in terms of form team at the top of the table at the moment. Um, and as I just feel like, yeah, if if they're in the same way that the yellow cards is like a very small little indicator, it's just one more tick in the yes mm. column. The fact that other teams are having bad runs of form when they're playing them, another tick. Yeah, yeah, you're you're exactly right because this is sort of you know away at Spurs is one of those games where you would have imagined Arsenal would need to be at their best, but whether or not they were, and and I agree with you, this isn't the best we've seen them all season. They did get the three points, so that's sort of one of your tough games. Tick tick tick, three points. Um, I mean, they didn't only, need to play well or badly. That that, that game's now done. Yeah, exactly. You haven't got to play away at Spurs again, so that that's sort of locked in. Um, well, look, that, okay, that was that was the North London derby. Um, Spurs have also now fallen um, out of the top four, thanks to Manchester United sort of rising up through the table. Let's go there next. Let's go to Manchester, um, where there was a perhaps more controversial derby um, that sort of took a little while to come to life. Uh, but when it did, boy, did it. Um, we obviously had Jack Grealish coming in off the bench again, the, the super sub, um, scoring a header, which is, is quite rare for him, I feel like. I feel like I don't, didn't see him score that many headers at Aston Villa, and I think he's only scored about four goals for City or something, but a rare one there. And then um, a very, very controversial goal to level things. I mean, I want to hear your take on this, because this is one of those moments, and we're going to talk about a similar situation, but not this isn't something on the pitch, but this is one of those situations where the rules may mean that something has happened, but I say that that means the rule is stupid. <laughs> so, of course, I'm talking about Bruno Fernandez's goal, uh, where Casemiro plays the ball through, Rashford is sort of running right behind it, uh, doesn't touch it, um, but then Bruno Fernandez sort of comes in and, and curls the ball, lovely finish, uh, incidentally, um, but sort of curls the ball in and, and finishes it, and all the City players are sort of going, how is that not offside? Um, and the referee ruled that Marcus Rashford was not interfering with play. Um, your thoughts, Rupert, on that decision? Um, I mean, I don't... I don't think it's it's much of a discussion, really. I think at this point, like it's very clear that that that, that this was a massive error in in refereeing, and that it should have been um, it should have been ruled off for offside. Um, there have been times where I remember um, down the years I've looked at goals and I thought that shouldn't have stood because a defender has become distracted by a player that was in an offside position that then didn't move towards the ball. And I often used to think mm. that like that should be offside. But the, the rule works if the player makes no indication of being a part of the play. That's that's like the key thing that I didn't understand when I was younger. And I used to watch them and I used to get frustrated. I used to think, like, why is that not offside? Because he's distracting the defender. Ultimately, if he's there but not playing, if the defender gets distracted, that's his fault as a player. Because... He should recognise, and it's hard, but he should recognise that he's not able to to, to play um, the ball in that position. And so you need to set up in a different way. This is obviously a different scenario because Rashford did massively influence the play. He looks like like curling ushered it all the way onto Bruno Fernandes' right foot. And, and I'm sure you've seen, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen um, that, that picture and that, that footage of, of what it would have looked like if, if Rashford wasn't there. And it's so clear that even if the defender running back doesn't get to it, I think it was a Kanji, then um, the goalkeeper absolutely does get there before Bruno Fernandes, but wasn't able to because he had to set himself in order to, to, to stop a potential shot from Rashford. So, so he's directly influencing the play. He's actively influencing the play. And so 100% should have been ruled off. And I think that it, it really... It really demonstrates a problem. I can't remember if we've talked about this specific problem within VAR, but but the the problem being that because referees now have VAR to fall back on, they do. But VAR isn't built to be fallen back on. Um, So referees, I feel like, are starting to make decisions where they, they go, it's okay if I'm wrong because VAR will catch me. They're my safety net. However... VAR is not designed in that way. It's designed to to only pick up on on times when referees have made categorical errors in judgment, and and they have to make those decisions really quickly. So it's easy to make mistakes 
I think, in, in those instances. I don't think they should be happening. They, they should definitely be cut out. But I can see why those mistakes get made. And, and they get made because they're not looking objectively. They're looking for instances where the referee has 100% made a mistake. And that mm. doesn't cover everything. Yeah, uh, no, I couldn't have said it better myself, and I, I think that's a that's a great summary of the, of the situation. It definitely is, you know, e- even sort of on top of all the other things that you mentioned there, with with Edison sort of being able to come out. You can just see by looking at the way, the, sort of the frame of, um, you know, Rashford from behind. You can tell he's <clears throat> clearly leaning to the right to sort of anticipate the way that Rashford's body is is shaped, and then Fernando sort of steams in and hits it on the other side, so he's completely wrong-footed. I I don't know how you can say that he's not influenced play there. Um, And I think it it is one of those, you know, it's one of those decisions that really only happens if Manchester United score that goal at Old Trafford, or if Liverpool (laughs) score that goal at Anfield. It doesn't really happen anywhere else. And I think it's just insane we're still at that point, because that could be a goal that, yes, you know, everyone sort of reacts to goals differently. And if United had not scored that, then City could blah, 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 blah. But that is a goal that really could impact who wins the Premier League, who finishes in the top four. That that could be, again, we talk about it so much, but this is really what's at stake here. It could be a multi-billion pound mistake. Um, And I just can't understand how that's allowed to happen all the time. And And it really is all the time. It really, I mean, like if, if you're an investment bank, I'm trying to think anywhere else where you could make a multi-billion pound mistake. But if you're like an investment banker or something and you accidentally type in a few extra zeros and you cost your company, you know, two billion or you cost one of the companies that work with you two billion, you're not like slapped on the wrist and sent down to the championship for a weekend, <laughs> sent down to like sort of one of the lower floors for a weekend and then you're back the next weekend. They're like, you are fired and blackballed from the industry. Whereas referees, they do that and they're like, yeah, all right, fair enough. See you probably next weekend, mate. But if they make enough of a fuss, weekend after next. Yeah, it's 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 bullshit. <laughs> um, it's it, it absolutely is bullshit. But you know, here, here we are. That's really um, all you can. Um, that's really all you can say about it. Like it's strong words, but it's strong feelings, and it's it's it has a strong impact. Um, and yeah, you're right. I, I don't know if is it the referees on the. I don't think the referee on the pitch should get um, necessarily blamed for that as much as as the VAR referee, the fourth official. Um, you know, I think in theory referees can be shit if VAR is very good. So you don't need to reform both. <laughs> It'd be a lot simpler. To well, well, ideally you do. <laughs> Obviously, ideally, but like, let's be realist here, Cam. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that that in one season or two seasons they'll be able to to turn around both the refereeing on the pitch and the refereeing off the pitch. So at the very no, least, fix it off the pitch. It's newer. It's easier to reform. It, it should be simple. It should be simple. Yeah. I, I... I agree, and I, you know, one that we can talk about at length another time because I think there's a whole conversation to unpack there. But I've always been a fan of the suggestion of just put a player in the video, like an ex-player, someone who is, you know, not biased in that kind of game. This is, is, you know, the UK for crying out loud. There's so many former footballers knocking about on the weekends that would love to get involved in sort of broadcasting or or sort of some sort of form of match involvement. Stick them in the in the video assistant referee room, like just get a player's perspective on the. You know, we talked about it with again. I don't want to get this is a whole thing but we talked about with the um simon masiniak at the uh, the world cup final how much difference it made that he had played even at an amateur level how great would it be to have sort of like an ex-premier league uh you know footballer in that room and go actually you know what based on i am a striker or i am a defender that absolutely would have impacted my decision making based on how he's run there um rather than just a bunch of guys who are looking at it with you know no real perspective uh on the game you, you you would imagine um but anyway, that 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 was the yeah. the extremely contentious, um, you mean, know, billion pound mistake. I just, I mean, the the last thing I would say is, I feel like whoever it is, you need to have specific training if you're trying to break down videos that are happening in real time, frame by frame. You need to yeah. have specialized training done to be able to analyze that effectively, because otherwise, you just make so many mistakes. Well, and, and any fan will tell you because it's happened to every single fan of every single club in some form or another that's had to face not even VAR, just like pictures. It is 
incre- like it's it's possible to make anything look worse or better depending on the angles you show, the speed you show it at. You know, a, a tackle that is shown on you know a, a full full speed might not look that bad, but then you slow it down, you really get to see the impact, or you only see it sort of frame by frame, or it might look it might look better actually, but then you play it at full speed, and wow, he's really clattered him. Everyone knows that that if you if you look at things sort of frame by frame, or you sort of watch them in a different way than how they happened. Sometimes it can actually be less helpful, <laughs> and yet we're still in the yeah, situation yeah. where VR makes those decisions based on like, okay, let's have the most forensic view of it. But actually, sometimes you know you can't see the wood for the trees. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and I think um, I've just had this thought, but in theory, it's it would be so easy to like A B test different types of of video assisted refereeing. It would be so easy to to basically you could have what you're what you're doing now have that. And then have maybe another team trying a different method in the same game, and they're not impacting it, but they're coming up with their own decisions that they present at the end. Uh, and you could have you have five different teams of, of of people trying five different approaches, all on all on one game. Do a hundred games, and then you can see which team has been able to to come up with uh, and produce the most accurate results upon um, like post match inspection. It, it, like that, that yeah. I, I thought about that for five minutes. Can can we get some professional judgments here, please? Like it's not hard. Or or or, or even have um you know a, a a video assistant referee team is what four or five guys um in the I think there's there's the main guy and then three assistants. But let's let's say five for the you know just for the sake of in case it is you know e- even have three different teams have three different teams that sort are of all making a decision independently and they sort of vote on a system and majority rules because then at least you'd have sort of like a, a, a additional there's still a chance that all of them would be equally shit independently but at least there's a chance that even if you know one team has a has a big error and sort of all all goes together on sort of um the same wavelength because there's a big personality you have a, a bit of a buffer and it's not like that would be that much of an expense for the powers that be because there's literally like thousands of people who work uh, across sort of a match if you take into account sort of like broadcast there's people who work at the grounds or all that different things so getting like 10 more people involved <laughs> wouldn't be that much of a stretch i don't think also i mean <laughs> um i wonder if imagine if the premier league went to the big clubs and they were like right it's you know it's it's man u versus man city this weekend manchester united manchester city do you want to give us an extra grand and we'll put two more teams in 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 the in the room I'm sure they'd say yes. Well, I, I don't, would Manchester United? I feel like that would sort of, that's yeah. their sort of like, <laughs> that's their special source. E- even now, they sort of got like, because they were so good for so long in the modern generation, I th- still think that they'd be like, yeah, probably not. You know what? Uh, Give us your oldest, blindest video assistant <laughs> referee. Because <laughs> he'll just, in his head, he'll be like, I think I saw United score because I'm used to that. <laughs> I, I think at least, one of, uh, at least one of any fixture would say yes. I want to talk to you next, just rounding off this game. Um, talk to me about uh, the big man, about Erling Haaland. Um, come back from the World Cup, or we've come back from the, the World Cup, and Erling Haaland's come back from his, his World Cup break. Um, doesn't seem to be scoring at exactly the same rate as he was before. He's still playing, you know, well, and he's still making differences in games and, and sort of making runs. Um, but not um, not scoring a lot of goals. There have been some suggestions that City have actually looked better without him. For example, this sort of FA Cup thrashing uh, of Chelsea. Um, now, we all kind of knew, we all wanted to believe that he was going to score 60 league goals, but we all knew that scoring form wasn't actually sustainable. Um, what's happened? Do you think that everyone in the league has figured him out? Do you think that he's maybe run out of steam? Um, is this just sort of a little blip because there's been some tough fixtures? Or is it over? I mean, I mean, it's an impossible question to answer because we, we and, just and so know. I have asked it. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, he he banged right out of the gate again after the World Cup. He scored four goals in three games. Two of those games being in in the Premier League, including a, a brace against Leeds, um, a man of the match. So I mean, he has played well post World Cup. Um, he's not scored in three. Um, so he's he's not scored in two Premier League games. That is, um, and. I think, I think he was always going to run out of form, as you said. He was always going to run run in, out of steam a little bit, um, and it, it's come at the same time as Man City have run out of of form a little bit. They've been a little bit hit and miss. They lost to Man U. Um, they lost to to Southampton in the EFL Cup. It's not it's not everything, but that's not nothing. Um, you know, they drew to Everton 
um, on the last day of December. So I, I don't know. I feel like and they lost to they lost to Brentford right before the um, uh, right before the World Cup. So sure did, yeah. You know, Man City have not been playing super well. Um, they've had key players not in great form, and yeah, it was always going to be unmaintainable. He's never he's, he's not going to score sixty league goals. Like, that just can't happen. Um, so yes, that he was always going to fall back down to earth in some capacity. Should alarm bells be going off after two games without goals? No, absolutely not. You could take any any league season and barring maybe Messi, every single striker that it, anyone would put in their top ten for the last twenty years will have had at least a few games in a row where they didn't score. They just will. They, they absolutely will have. But the, these are just the standards that we're, uh, we're we're like those interviewers who are like, oh, early tough game for you today. And he's like, I scored. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, early Harlan hasn't scored back to back hat tricks. He's clearly shit. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I guess the main thing is, does Harlan have have enough facets to his game to be effective against any team? And I think, I think the answer is probably no. And I think that's what probably separates him from someone like Mbappe. Because I think Mbappe can be explosive in the same way as Haaland. But I think he also has that, that intricacy to be able to create and unlock himself. Whereas Haaland is probably a better poacher than Mbappe. But if stuff isn't being created around him, um, he's less likely, unless he's given 10 yards, to to be able to, to unpick low block defences that, that you do see in, in the Premier League. And Manchester United have quite a good um, defence at the moment. Casemiro has transformed it. And so I guess it's not super surprising, um, but it's a shame. It's been fun watching him bag every week, but he's not going to do it every week. Yeah, no, probably very true. Well, look, that's our teams at the top of the table. Um, let's take a quick break for Usus Trivia before we uh, look down at the bottom of the table, which is uh, increasingly becoming a hard-to-define area because there's just loads of teams in that mix. But first, let's have a bit of Usus Trivia. I've got uh, a bit of calendar calendar fun for you here, uh, Rupert, today. Um, Solly March has had... Uh, I, I, Fair to say an uncharacteristic period of form uh, over the last month. I mean, Brighton have been very good, but Solly March, for me, has always been one of the less remarkable players in that squad. Uh, apologies, Solly, if you're listening. But, hey, maybe he's turning a corner because he is the top scorer in the Premier League this January, uh, which is quite an impressive accolade. Still got, obviously, 12 days, 13 days even, to go in the month. But so far, top scorer in the Premier League this January. Um, but despite his name, he's never got a top-flight goal in March. <laughs> See that? <laughs> no solid solid january maybe uh not solid march did you know that harry kane's middle name was august mm, is that true no. <laughs> i feel like you're you're yanking my chain <laughs> you're jerking my chain here <laughs> uh, i was indeed um and it is indeed not um but yeah that's uh that's a nice little that's a nice little thing that that i hope everyone can just accept and I hope that Solly March can just just continue to have bad marches because it's nice when things can be consistent, isn't it? It's nice when there are rules to the world. Well, I mean, you know, unlike him, David May did score in May. Julian Jonvier scored for Brentford in January. Uh, so you know, Solly March just got to he's got to join the club, basically. <laughs> oh dear. Um, well, so I have. Um, I've got a piece of different trivia for you this this um this week and it's it's a really lovely fairy tale. You might have come across it. If you haven't, strap in. It's about everyone's favourite old Arsenal and West Ham striker, Lucas Perez. Have you come across this story in the news? I have indeed, but uh, I'll let you tell it because it's uh, it's a great one. So Lucas Perez, um until January um a, a week or two ago was playing in Spain's top flight um, for Cadiz and finished, uh, even despite the fact that he's, he's 34, finished as their top goalscorer last season. Um, however, he has always been a lifelong fan of another Spanish side called Deportivo La Coruña, who, despite mm-hmm. having a really rich history of footballing um, heritage, have had a really hard couple of seasons and they've managed to 
been re- been relegated two times and failed to win promotion back up. So they're now playing in the third division of Spanish football and they're really struggling um, to to you know get themselves back up into uh, the top flight. Um, so Lucas Perez has decided to do something that I absolutely love and really would, would be uh, delighted to see more of in the future, um, has decided to pay half a million euros out of his own pocket to end his um, contract with Cadiz and move two leagues down to play for Deportivo um, in order to try and get them back up to winning ways and back into the Segunda Division and then La Liga. And he played his first game um, last weekend and bagged a brace in a 3-0 win. And I just really hope that he shines. I hope he, w- I hope he wins the lottery. I hope, I hope that he has a fantastic rest of his life. You know, I, I just, I want, I want more of this. I want them to go up. I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, re- re- really heartwarming story, and definitely um, in a game that becomes increasingly estranged from from us fans. Uh, you know, with all this sort of big money moves flying around, and you know, footballers that are multi millionaires, and even some some billionaires, you know, floating around in the future. Uh, it's nice to see that you know some football fans, are, some football players, even uh, are just like us fans, and they they you know want to see their team succeed. So yeah, definitely definitely very heartwarming indeed. Sure is, and I think um, I want to say there's another player that that did it very fairly recently, which was um, Joe Blashikovsky. Yes, yeah. I, th- I think he too, if I remember correctly, he returned to his former club, which is like a, a division down in the Polish league where he started his career on a free transfer. He's part owner of the club now. He's been playing there for a couple of years. That's another another heartwarming tale. Um, but yeah, more of the same, please, world. <laughs> you, know, you know what's funny? And I think this this says more about me than it does about Lucas Perez or Jakob Blaszczykowski. But I was thinking, like, if I was um, <clears throat> either a famous footballer or, like, a successful footballer or, or anything, like, top of my field in anything, really, that has a competitive nature, I would probably do the same thing and go back to, like, my local roots and play there uh, when I sort of got a bit older. Not out of any sort of like, maybe a little bit out of allegiance for that, but like so mainly to sort of like see 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 all the people that I like from my community that I grew up and just dunk on everyone. Like find like the the <laughs> PE teacher who said I couldn't make it and just score a hat trick past his son in goal or something, and just absolutely <laughs> just become the biggest boss on the block and just be like, none of you thought I was going to make it. What up? It's like, me. Like, like play against the, the guys who were at the rival school growing up and just absolutely dominate them. <laughs> yeah, there's there's uh there's definitely you know, I would I would probably enjoy doing that as well. I don't think you're alone. I don't think uh I don't think that that uh will lead to any sort of judgment on your part um as a as a person. I think I think I'd do the same. I think it would be damn fun. Um but yeah, you hope you like to think that there's also some some goodness um, for for Lucas Perez and yeah, I'm sure he's having a great time. I'm sure he's probably never going to have to pay for a pint again uh, in his hometown. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Well, great story. Let's look now at um, the bottom end of the table because uh, I've got a another impossible question to pose you. I know how much you love uh, when I hit you with those without any preparation. Um, I've been. I've been looking at the the table and thinking about the teams, and it's occurred to me recently when I think about the Premier League, like how many teams I think, like, oh god, yeah, they're terrible, they're definitely going down because the number is now more than three, <laughs> and that can't work. <laughs> um, sure. You know, there's so many teams I look at who I think, like, oh god, they'll be out of here pretty soon. They're in danger. There are definitely some who sort of feature in my thoughts that way more than others, but. The way I see it in the Premier League at the moment, there are eight different teams that could quite easily go down. And I don't think any of those teams, as it stands, would be like, oh, no, they're really unlucky to have gone down. I think, if anything, there are about five teams that are only going to stay up because there are three teams worse than all of them. When you look at the table from sort of like 13th down, 
I mean, 13th, for example, I mean, what better way to start off is Nottingham Forest. Remember at the start of the season? And we were all like, Nottingham Forest are hopeless. They're the top of the they're the top of the shit pile currently. Underneath them, you've got Leeds, yeah. Leicester City, Wolves, Bournemouth, West Ham, Everton, and Southampton. Southampton are on 15 points, and Nottingham Forest are all the way up in, in 13th with only 20 points. That's five points that separates um those um those positions. And then the bottom half of the table is rounded out by Crystal Palace, who are on 23 points, further 23, uh, and Aston Villa on 25, but a little bit above the uh, the rest of the sort of the, the swamp, the quicksand. I think it might be the biggest gap we've seen for a long time between the top half and the bottom half. What do you think? Well, it's interesting because you kind of, you put a very small note about this in the, in the notes for the, for, for preparing for the, for the show. Um, so I did a little digging of my own and I don't think that this is crazy. I don't think that this is like such a, such a shocking thing for this time of the year. And and the reason why is, for example, that, that gap that you talked about from 20th to 11th, which is 10 points. This time last season, you had Norwich City on 10 points in bottom and 11th place, you had Crystal Palace on 20. So, you know, it's not completely unheard of. Um, the season before that, um, it was, um, I think it was 19 points separating 20th and 11th. So I think it's quite a common rough gap that there would be between, you know, the, the bottom and the top of the bottom half. Um, and actually, even more so, um, looking through um, the, the bottom half of this table, um, I think... When you look at the form of of the those bottom, how many is it? Those bottom like nine teams: one, two, three, four, eight five, teams, six, yeah. seven, eight. Um, if you look at the form of of those bottom eight teams, they they've won significantly more games of their last five than is the case last year. So last year, from one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, from from the bottom ten teams. For the last five games, so for those ten teams playing fifty games, they only won seven of them. Whereas this that's year, just maybe, but 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 I would posit that that's because they're all shit enough for the other ones to be. Like a case in point being Southampton, who have been like absolutely god awful since Nathan Jones took over and haven't won a single game in the Premier League. Well, they got to play Everton at Goodison Park, so that was a win for them. And I think there's sort of like this weird <laughs> sort of like cannibalistic cycle of all of the shit because like none of them are on. You mentioned there that Norwich were on eleven points, and the lowest the lowest point total here is, is fifteen. Um, but I think they're all sort of just like taking points off each other um, now and again. And, I think more than any sort of I, I, I appreciate and I think it's very valuable and I think it, it may even refute my, my gut feeling uh, that the teams are, are much worse but just from you know the eye test I, I like an eye I like a stat I also like an eye test I'm a bit of, bit of both go both ways um, but yeah just, just from watching these teams they, they do seem a lot worse than you like Everton are awful Southampton are pretty dreadful Wolves who are now out of the relegation zone pretty I mean they've got a little bit better under Lopetegui but still quite bad Leicester say Bournemouth a lot of bad like a lot of teams that, as I said at the beginning I would not be surprised to see go down at the end of the season whereas it feels perhaps you know perhaps this is, isn't true and this is sort of just recency bias it usually feels like about halfway through the season you can narrow that down to maybe like five teams you definitely know one team that's going down there's always one team that's sort of rock bottom usually Norwich or or Fulham they sort of trade every other place although Fulham are doing very well this season of course um and then you sort of have an idea about there's normally like a Watford type team and then for the third spot you're kind of like ah, who's gonna at the moment it could be any of those eight teams and you wouldn't say it'd be unfair for any of them to go down on current form yeah, that's true, but I think I think you can always more or less kind of pick out a good five or six. Maybe you're right that it's surprising that there are kind of eight that really could go down. But um, you know, I think the main difference again, the the final point I was going to make for for like the form of of the teams in the bottom half last year at this point of the season versus this year is that this year teams are actually winning games, um, whereas uh, you know in terms of draws, the bottom half. Um, in the last five games had drawn 18 matches whereas the same comparative number for this season is only eight so they're mm. winning more games they're drawing fewer uh, and even if they're taking points off each other it's still it's still swinging and roundabouting potentially more than it was last season 
Yeah, perhaps. Uh, it might might have a sort of an interesting situation where we have, in my opinion, sort of a, a worse sort of bottom of the table because instead of there being, you know what I mean? Like N- Norwich, you know, when they, and I'm using Norwich as a scapegoat just because they're, they're an easy to abuse example. I'm not abusing Fulham because Fulham will come to my, my backyard and beat me 3-0 on current form. Um, but, you know, they'll not really be able to beat anyone. They'll get like two wins. Whereas now, if you're Southampton, you can go to Goodison Park and get three points because there's there's like seven teams you could beat because there are eight bad teams in the league. <laughs> but does that... Yeah, I mean, I guess it does mean that, that more can go down. But I guess it also means that it's more competitive. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I, I suppose we'll see over the course of other sort of the quote-unquote big teams or just the top half teams um playing other other sides as well and how those go out you know i'm sure we will at some point see you know wolves beat arsenal or something like that and that'll be a a big sort of restoration of ah the glory of the premier league but i was just thinking about this and like you know we always talk about the premier league as english fans or british fans anyway um and sort of go oh you know the reason the premier league is the best league in the world is that anyone can beat anyone and i'm just maybe sort of overly cautious that we might be getting to a place where that's not true anymore any minute now um because the gap does seem to be widening um you've got you know there's quite frequently an english team in the champions league final and in the europa league final from the sort of the top end of the table and also like the teams at the bottom are getting quite bad (laughs) so maybe it's nothing maybe it's just a weird year um maybe the world cup is contributing to this i don't know um but yeah watch this space is my sort of um, ominous portent. Yeah, I mean, I think I, it's the final thing that would be pertinent to say now is like you know, we've talked a lot about, and it's really clear to see that up and down the football pyramid, that the financials aren't stacking up for smaller clubs, and so financially the gaps are getting wider. Um, and even if that isn't yet having an effect on the pitch significantly, it will only continue to be more influential. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly true. And actually, there's a, a conversation I want to plan to have with you in the near future, a little little live preview for you here, listeners, about the, um, you know, where the, the sort of Syria's and La Liga's made their mistake in falling off the perch and sort of allowing the Premier League to become the big commercial powerhouse uh, and where the mm. Premier League and indeed the football pyramid could make the same mistakes. But that's one for another time and not for now. Whoa. Let's talk... T- tickling, uh, the, teasing the, the thought string on. There. On the football pyramid, on obscene amounts of money uh, flying around, let's talk about this bizarre conclusion to the Michaela Mudrick saga. A uh, couple of reasons to talk about this. Firstly, um, highly rated player goes to Premier League club. Will he be good? Will he be not so good? Will he be not good at all? Um, secondly, um, Chelsea, they continue to spend the big bucks. Thirdly, financial fair play. What is? Um... And it's interesting. So, so I live with, um, well, actually, I, I used to live with, uh, rather, uh, a Stoke fan uh, who sort of bemoans all the time that Stoke currently are only allowed to loan players because uh, they sort of uh, broke a little bit of financial fair play, so they can't transfer any players and they're banned. Uh, Cardiff City are much the same, banned from from, from making transfers. Um, and everyone will remember the sort of ordeal that Wayne Rooney's derby went through last season where every time they sort of poked their head out of the relegation zone, the EFL came down with a fist and went, that's another five points deducted. Um, and it sort of just begs the question of like, what is the purpose of financial fair play? Because you have these teams lower down the pyramid who break the rules and the EFL comes down on them with the, the, you know, the sword of Damocles and goes, no, 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 Derby, you'll be dreaming if you think you're staying in this league. And yet Chelsea have spent, if you include the Nkunku feed, nearly 500 million pounds in six months. What is? Well, I mean, there's... There's an interesting thing happening here, and there's a reason why Chelsea are able to do this while while actually conforming to financial fair play. And what it ultimately falls down to is that Chelsea are, are basically selling their future. They they're kind of they're kind of giving up on their future for the long for the short term. Um, and what I mean by that is um, what they've been doing when they sign these players um, and spend all this money is they've been signing them to, to like bumper long term contracts. And while that puts a massive burden on kind of future, not just um, on future uh, wages, sorry, it, it also means that they're allowed to spread out the the um, the ma- the amount of money that they're paying for these players 
over the course of that contract. So Mudrick is a great example. He signed an eight and a half year contract, which is practically unheard of. So his contract will run until 2031, the end of 2031, which is a crazy amount of time. But what it means is mm. that his transfer fee has gone from 88 million to 10 million a season. So what Chelsea are doing is perfectly within the boundaries of financial fair play, but it is going to absolutely hammer them in five years' time when they need to sign new players again because they've got their th- and three more managers in there over the course of five more seasons, but they're still paying off 70 million euro- like pounds a season to, to the players that they already have, some of which have probably already flopped and moved on. So it's it's very true, and, and just just to sort of put a name on that process, because I'm sure some listeners may have heard it before, and it makes sense if you've explained it very well. There, that that's called amortization, um, sure. and it's one of the things that that really hurt Barcelona when they went through their financial crisis. But back back to your your stellar explanation of of, of the situation. Well, when you look at the the players that they picked up, um, Mudrik, he's got a contract till 2031, Shile till 2029, Fafana till 2029. Other for farmer till 2029, uh, Casade to 28, um, Chukwameka to 28, Kukurea to 28, Gabriel Slanina to 28. So all of these players are being picked up for five, um, five year plus contracts. And as a result, uh, it, it's helping them out in the short term. It's not going to help them out in the long term. And as you say there, it can really come crashing down around you when you're a big club and you've been, you've been kind of paying ahead for, for long enough. And I think, Ultimately, like, I'm not angry at financial fair play now. I'll be angry at financial fair play in a few years' time if, if you know, they're allowed to get away with this and continue to, to kind of, I guess, skirt by and, and keep investing money because, because that would be wrong. But I, I do agree that one of the... I mean, the, the real problem is that rich clubs don't go broke the same way that, that poor clubs do. And that you can kind of mm. see that all over, right? It's the classic saying, right? They still get to keep the house. And that is true to an extent. You know, they just have more resources to be able to draw on. And they can spend 500 million to get themselves out of a hole when they need to and just write it off with a check. Um, so it's bad. It's, it's flawed. Um, and the the way that you fix it is is really with what Italy have done which is that um, in Italy, there's a limit uh, for players' contracts. You're only allowed to have a contract for five years at a time. And what that means is you can only spread out um, the burden of the transfer fee for five years. So, Mm. you know, I'm not suggesting that if they wanted to, they could, but I'm not suggesting that they would have to to make it so that, um, you know, you can only sign players on five-year contracts. I think that would maybe be... And over and over, yeah, that does, it's not necessary. But what you could do is you could say you can only stretch out the value of of the signing fee for five years, and that seems like a really mm. straightforward solution that would stop teams like Chelsea and teams like Barcelona from being able to do this because because ultimately, like they're kind of screwing themselves, and and it's it's the responsibility of the regulator to come in and not just stop teams from screwing over the system but also from screwing over themselves that's that's like that's kind of half their job yeah look I think you you've you very succinctly sort of talked about the, the state of play there and how, how Chelsea have done that and I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons firstly you know I, I think if there's a system that lets Chelsea do that in the first place, it's not working. Like whether or not Chelsea have, you know, put themselves in trouble in five years or 10 years or or 15 years or whatever, they've still managed to add 500 million pounds of players in six months time, which is, it's it's warped the transfer market. It's not just a bad thing for Chelsea. It's a bad thing for global football. Uh, And they're not the only club to do this, although you might say they were the first club to do this in the sort of uh, first Mourinho era. But this is sort of a big part of the reason why all these things have knockoff effects. We saw it with the the Mudrick transfer itself, for example. Um, You know, Shakhtar's chairman, uh, or maybe it was their chief executive, I'm I'm not quite sure. But there might have been both of them even. They they kept being the sort of the same line out of the Shakhtar camp, which was, you know, if Anthony went for this much, then we believe that Mudrick should go for this much because we believe he's a better player and this is how these transfer fees spiral out of control because everyone's got a top asset and they think well actually we think our guy is actually better than the guy who just went six months ago for x we think he's x plus 10 and it's it's how now you know we have all these players flying around for for just unbelievable amounts of money I mean we talked the other day about 
if you look at that sort of top 20 most expensive transfers of all time, like four of them were value for money um, because you just have these players who are going for, for absolutely colossal fees. Um, I also wonder, like, you know, you were talking there about how sort of Chelsea could really sort of fuck themselves in the future. And it's something that we definitely saw happen with Barcelona. Could Chelsea not just kind of like, you ever see that like Tom and Jerry thing where they're like riding on a toy train and they're placing the tracks ahead of them as the train keeps going? Could Chelsea yeah. not just continue signing players on like 17 year contracts and then because the other thing about no, sort of this long term future but the, but no, no but, but the, the reason I say that is because the thing that you know we're all assuming is like Chelsea have signed these players on sort of 8 year contracts or, or sort of 6 year contracts or 7 year contracts or whatever and we're going oh down the line that might sort of get them there's nothing to say that in four or five years' time, there won't be a massive, uh, you know, reading in how football works. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we saw the Super League, the Champions League is changing, FFP mm-hmm. itself is five, six years old. So essentially, all you need to do is, if you've got good legislators and you think you can sort of petition, you know, the the bodies that be and the powers that be well, um, just kind of stall until you can get it, you know, over and done with. As, again, Chelsea kind of did when they racked up all that massive debt under Roman Abramovich, and, you know, those Chelsea fans are going, oh, this is going to come back to bite us eventually, and then Roman sold up and paid off all the debt. So, <laughs> they might not have, have fucked themselves at all. Yeah, it's a good point, and I'm sure it's built into, I guess, the risk of, of this kind of strategy. Um, you know, while... While I am criticising Chelsea for doing this, I'm sure someone somewhere got out the spreadsheet and worked out what they what they should do as someone who has more financial credentials than me. So you know, it's there's a way in which they come out of this smelling okay, but it's unlikely, and they are warping the market, and it's hurting them the most because. Every every smaller club knows that they can extract a, a giant sum of money from them. Um, so again, that's another short term uh, perspective that that Chelsea have. And look, we're going to see what happens. But uh, I think this is a real mistake. And while they can, to an extent, keep putting the tracks down, the the walls will keep closing in around them. They will run out of track. You, unless unless something like you described drastically changes, they will. You, you can't. It's, it's not physically possible to keep doing what they're doing. Um, you it, know, it just seems weird though because even in that time, you know, even if there's not a big drastic change, you can do things like for. I mean, you know, Barcelona had limited scope to grow when they started spending a ridiculous amount of money because they were already, you know, probably the third biggest club in the world after Manchester United and Real Madrid. Chelsea are definitely one of the bigger clubs in the world, but they still have room to grow and become like, you know, Chelsea's ambition, as well as Manchester City's ambition for that matter, will be to be the next Manchester United or the next, um, you know, uh, Liverpool would, would be the other one. Um, and they sort of certainly had, you know, a good crack at trying to be the biggest team in the in the UK in that, in that first uh, sort of Abramovich era um, and won a number of, um, one of the Premier Leagues and, and a number of trophies. If they sort of spend loads and loads and loads of money and get loads of brand deals and things of that nature off the back of it, they probably won't get all the money back. But if they manage to inflate themselves so artificially, how is that fair again? It just, the whole thing just, it's a microcosm of society at large, I suppose. But the fact that like Chelsea can have this massive gamble and throw money at the, at the problem and maybe they'll fuck themselves over long term, but it is a big maybe. Whereas Derby or Stoke or Cardiff City or there are going to be, you know, hundreds of other examples, you know, Berry were, were liquidated or I can't remember what the exact uh the exact state of their um sort of dissolution was but um you know all, all these smaller clubs get absolutely pounded by the powers that be and chelsea can spend half a billion in half a year and the powers that be go uh well we'll keep an eye on that one that might get out of hand it's already out of hand yeah it, it is already out of hand um and it's just about access to funds because you know in theory any any smaller club could also take gambles they could they could borrow money with the hope that they get promoted, for example, um, you borrow money to buy players in January with the hope that you get promoted and then you're able to to pay off your loans. Um, so they could try that, but it would be a really risky thing to do. Um, it, it just the, the problem is, which is kind of what you've outlined, that the system is not equal enough so as not to massively favour the clubs which have really deep pockets. 
Um, I mean, that's that's mm. ultimately what it comes down to, right? They have money that they can spend if they need to in a pinch and make it work out over the over the course of several years. Whereas smaller clubs can't do that, um, so they shouldn't yeah. be allowed to. Well, look, a, a story that I'm sure we'll be following with a lot of interest over the the coming years. But um, you know, one that was just worth bringing up because the Mudrick saga mm. was a bizarre one for for a lot of reasons to discuss. And I'm sure we can uh, talk a little bit more about him when he's played a few games. I'd love to spend more time now, but we are coming uh, pretty close to time. We're even going to have to axe off our talk about Liverpool losing three nil to Brighton. So that'll have to be tied into our next conversation around both those sides. One uh, doing very very well, the other side doing not very very well. Um, yeah, more or less, more more or less, pretty pretty, uh, you know, wrapped up way of saying it. Uh, but yeah, Rupert, I think that'll probably be where we end it for this week. Great to talk to you as always, Cam. Thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.